if you're able, do get your hands on a physical Bible. I'll be pointing into it a fair bit and it'll help you to follow along and to check what I'm saying. Let's pray again just as we begin. Father God, would you please help me to speak clearly this morning? Uh, please grant that the technology would continue to work. Please show us yourself in your word and teach us what we need to know for the week ahead. Amen. It's great to be speaking to you this morning. I, I do miss being with you in person. It, it's really strange to be speaking from my bedroom with the camera artfully turned away from all the chaos. Um, it's just part of the strange times we're living through though, isn't it? There's unprecedented uncertainty, there's new anxieties, and yes, we're through those tough first stages of lockdown, but it's hard to tell quite how the gradual return to normality is gonna work. Hopefully amid the uncertainty, this morning's psalm will be something of a comfort. If you're just dropping in on us, then welcome. Uh, we're currently working through a sermon series looking at the characteristics of God in the Psalms, his graciousness, his goodness, his power. And this morning, as Hannah was sort of trailing for us, we're going to use Psalm 90 to think about the greatness of God. And obviously greatness is a, a broad concept. There's a bunch of ways that we could take it. So the Psalms talk about God's great power and authority. In Psalm 2, we're told that the one enthroned in heaven laughs at those who plot against him. In Psalm 95, the Lord is the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. He is the great creator God with authority over the earth because he made it. Or Psalm 48 tells us that he's great and most worthy of praise because of the citadel in Zion that he establishes with his power on full display for the world to see. And also he's the great God who destroys all that opposes him. We see that in Psalm 97, the mountains melt like wax before him. The Psalms speak of a powerful and authoritative God. They also present him as great in other ways, his love and faithfulness. Yes, Psalm 118, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Well, Psalm 86, I will praise you, Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever for great is your love towards me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Throughout the Psalms, he is the faithful generous saviour God that Israel could depend on, great in his love and faithfulness. But the key sense that I want to explore from today's psalm is the enduring greatness of God over time. And we started our series with Dave pointing us at Psalm 145 verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. But just a little bit earlier in Psalm 145 we sing Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. And absolutely central to Israel's understanding of their God was that idea that he was the same God, dependable from generation to generation, holding to his covenant promises, uh, revealed in his past actions, and so reliable in their future relationships. In our passage today, Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. 
before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The Lord is God from everlasting to everlasting. We're told that Psalm 90, if you look at the heading of it, is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. If you're cynical, that may mean that it was written later, but as if from Moses's viewpoint. Actually, though, it may perfectly well be that this is a psalm that he wrote and sang, preserved through Israel's history, reflecting his experience of God. There's no good reason to doubt that. Certainly, the eternal, reliable, dependable greatness of God was core to Moses's experience of him. Think back to the beginning of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Moses meets God in the burning bush and he asks God his name. And the answer he gets is, I am who I am. And in that English translation, we miss that it also means I was who I was and I will be who I will be. The very way that God names himself to Moses is an expression of unchanging constancy. The rock of ages, reliable and consistent from everlasting to everlasting. And in fact, in Exodus, the very next thing he says to Moses is go to Israel and tell them, this is my name forever. The name that you shall call me from generation to generation this is how they're to experience him. And so Moses and Israel after him can sing from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Fundamental to the Old Testament is that their God is a great God. The mighty creator who in verse two brought forth the whole world and yet somehow remains consistently engaged with them, their dwelling place in verse one through all generations. What's that mean for them? Um, we're going to look through the psalm and we'll see in verses three to 12 that it's not necessarily good news. And then we're going to see in verses 13 to 17 how God's people can still appeal to their Lord with confidence and joy. So first, look with me at verses 3 to 12. Um, if you're a note taker and you want a subheading here, you could use Psalm 8, verse 4. In Psalm 8, David is confronted with the majesty of God's creation and the wonder of the heavens. And he asks, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And maybe Psalm 90, verse 3 to 6 leaves you with a similar feel. Look at it. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. What is man that you are mindful of him? Perhaps verse three brings up that classic funeral prayer, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. 
or verse 5 and 6 echo a picture that's used throughout scripture that next to God's time spans all of human achievement is like the long grass in the field it seems so green and verdant in the morning but by the end of the day it's dried out and dead withered by the brutal summer sun no greater cosmic significance than your dying lawn in a hosepipe bag but psalm 90 is not just the fatalistic acknowledgement of nihilism it's not just a recognition that we pale into insignificance when we look at the big picture if that were it then the response would just be eat drink and be merry enjoy what time you've got and don't worry about consequences now psalm 90 is is scarier than that you see the god that moses is speaking to here is active not indifferent and, and mortals are dust beside him sure they're, they're like new grass that withers but but verse three did you see he returns them to dust verse five he sweeps them away moses knows that the lord is not indifferent he's indignant he's offended by so much of what he sees as you might be by a stream of ants that's marching towards your jam sandwich get away verse seven we are consumed by your anger verse eight our iniquities are sin are before you and our secret sins are revealed and friends before the great enduring mighty one of heaven the sordid secrets of my heart don't look so good and so verses 9 and 10 our days pass away under his active opposition his wrath so that even the strongest and best of us is limited to a, a few decades that quickly pass. God is a great, powerful creator, enduring from generation to generation. So what is man that God is mindful of us? If that was all that the psalm was, this would be a pretty bleak Sunday message. Um, I should say it's not. Um, if you're visiting and just dropping in on the YouTube stream there, or, or perhaps just being invited along by someone. And if you wouldn't consider yourself a believer, then welcome. It's lovely to have you joining us. But you should know this. The Christian message doesn't pull its punches. The gospel of Jesus is not meek and mild and inoffensive. In fact, the New Testament describes it as a noxious stench to some. If we continue to engage with the Bible and continue to build up a picture of the God shown in the Psalms and elsewhere, we end up having to acknowledge these verses. The way that we live is at odds with him. Have a look sometime at, at Psalm 2. It helps to set the tone of the whole book of Psalms and, and it asks, why do the nations conspire against God? Why do people oppose him? He's the one enthroned in heaven. They're nothing beside them. He, he, he laughs at their mockery. And the Psalms tell me that if I leave myself in opposition to the Lord, 
Well, the, the picture I gain of him in the Psalms will not be comforting. His greatness and power become a reason for fear. We should say though that here, that the tough reading of these verses isn't intended to bully or scare. I think it's just recognizing a reality. We are very small and brief, but God is not. And what Moses is doing here is refocusing, seeing himself in contrast to the everlasting God. And not just in contrast, but in relationship, independence on him. Because it's when we recognise the stature of the eternal God that we determine how we live in response. So Moses singing here appeals for wisdom. Look at verse 11. If only we knew the power of your anger. If only we knew the fear that you would you. If only we recognised how we look in comparison to you. Verse 12, teach us how to live correctly when we see ourselves in the context of your greatness. This isn't a cry of existential despair. It's a confident appeal to an enduring God whose love for his people has been consistent from generation to generation. Remember in verse one, Moses is singing to a God who has been his dwelling place. If you look at the story of Moses in Exodus, it's not rich in dwelling places. You see that he was an exile from Egypt. You see that he was called into pretty lonely leadership of Israel. That was not a comfortable position. He was grumbled against and rebelled against consistently. And his time as a leader was spent almost entirely in nomadic wandering without ever reaching a country of his own. And yet, verse 1, through all of that, he says, my dwelling place, my permanence, has been with you, God. And so, he can follow up the recognition of his problem, verses 3 to 12, with a confident appeal to the Lord who has been his dwelling place and who will continue to be his dwelling place from everlasting to everlasting. Look at verses 13 to 17. Moses can appeal to this great Lord and say, relent, have compassion. Because however far he's traveled, this is the great, enduring, unchanging God. This is the same God who called him in Exodus 3, who preserved Joseph and his forefathers, who made covenants with Abraham, Noah, and even with Adam. If the Lord is great and enduring, unchanged from generation to generation, then his promises will stand. His love will not fail. Let's just quickly whiz through the blessing that Moses calls for here. Now, verse 14, satisfy us in the morning, he says. I, I think that is day by day, each morning. Refresh and renew us. So not like the grass in verse 6, which is dried up and killed over a few hours. Each morning, give us our daily bread. 
Verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us. Now, I think that's not as transactional as maybe it sounds at first. It's not, I've had 40 tough years, give me 40 good ones. I think it's more transformative than that. It's recast the way that I see the days of my life in the knowledge of verses 1 and 2, in the knowledge of 11 and 12. So that rather than mourning my affliction, I would see my security in you, Lord, and rejoice. Lord, would you bring things into focus for me so that I see everything that has happened and that is happening through the lens of your greatness and see my security and my dwelling place and the sense that you make of my story. Verse 16, show us your deeds and splendor. And I think that's in contrast to verse 5. Rather than sleepwalking ignorantly into death, let us be awake and aware of what you're really doing, of where we really stand with you, Lord, who is our dwelling place. And then verse 17, and obviously in contrast to verse 9, instead of wrath, the blessing. One translator translates that, may the loveliness of the sovereign one, our God, be on us and the work of our hands, oh, establish it for us. Do you see how verses 13 to 17 are a, a complete reversal of verses 3 to 9? Moses' response to the staggering, timeless greatness of his creator is not terror. It's to ask that God to help him see the world rightly. It's to nestle into that greatness, to make it his dwelling place, to rely on it. To ask God to refocus his view of his life so that he doesn't see a wandering, homeless outsider, insignificant like dust. Instead, he sees himself as one who is satisfied each morning by the Lord's love. The work of his hands established by the Lord's power. The message of Psalm 90, the Lord is great from everlasting to everlasting. And that brings confidence and joy for those who dwell in him. For Moses, seeing the enduring greatness of the Lord leaves him able to ask, would your favour rest on us enduringly as we dwell in you? Do you see how in verse one, his human experience of time throughout all generations rests inside the divine experience in verse two, from everlasting to everlasting. It's as if he sees himself nestled in the creator's arms. So friends, where's your dwelling place? As we're recognising each week, we live in weird times maybe between everything that's happening at the moment the idea of stability and security seems unreal there is covid obviously and that's put a new set of pressures and stresses on us on the patterns of our life and our physical and mental health and our relationships and communities and then there's the uk entering recession and the sense that economically there are hard times ahead Many of us will be worried about our employment, the bills over the next few years. 
or maybe you or your children are receiving your exam results last week or this week. And you know, I'm a teacher, I can say it. That, that's a mess, isn't it? It's an even more uncertain set of transitions or decisions than usual. Maybe like our friends, the dents, you're in the process of moving from one city to another. Everything's up in the air. Why are you just aware that you're getting older? Does the language of verse four to six or verse 10 feel very real? Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strengthened years. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. Moses calls us to look to see God clearly so that in fearing him, that is in acknowledging his authority and power and choosing to live in response, in fearing him, our lives can come into focus as he prays in verses 13 to 17. Now, of course, Moses was privileged, right? He met God face to face in the burning bush. He was introduced to him in the language of Psalm 90. He met God on the mountaintop. He spoke to him as a friend. But as we so often say, friends, we're privileged to see much more. Psalm 8 asks, what is the son of man that you care for him? But then it goes on, you made him a little lower than the angels and then crowned him with glory and honour. And as with all the promises of scripture, we turn our eyes forward to Jesus, who names himself the Son of Man, and we see the fulfilment. Jesus, who in John 8 is asked about his authority, his authority's challenge, and he makes this outlandish claim, before Abraham was born, I am. It's the enduring across time idea of Psalm 90. The Apostle Paul, convinced by meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, writes this in Philippians 2. He says, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Psalm 90 verse 11. If only we knew his power and authority. If only we recognise the fear he is due. Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Friends, it's a Christian truism. But amidst all of the uncertainty, fix your eyes on Christ marvel at him make him the lens through which you see your life so that it comes into focus you are not a fleeting moment in history that will be swept away you are a beloved child of christ a redeemed disciple an orphan who has been adopted as an heir of a promise that can never perish or spoil or fade you are the ultimate rags to riches story. Hebrews 13.8 says, 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And our experience can nestle into that consistency, just like in Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2. Let me give a, a few particular encouragements before we finish. Quick thoughts on sin and significance and satisfaction. I thought three S's would keep Dan happy. If our God is great, in this Psalm 90 sense of enduring from generation to generation, if he's an unchanging, reliable rock, what does that mean for the way that I'm going to live this week? I'm certain that, like me, you struggle with sin. That is the Christian experience. So let me give you a challenge and two encouragements. The challenge is this. Psalm 90 says it matters. It, it's so easy to get jaded over time, isn't it? To know after years or decades as a believer that you still fail in many of the same ways. And even to be more aware of your failings as a mature Christian than you ever were before. And so we can give up hoping for change. But verses 7 to 12 remind us our natural patterns are incompatible with the Lord. That should leave you with a sense of tension and challenge. It is right to long for change. And in fact, the more clearly that we see Jesus and his goodness, the more we should feel that. So friends, beware of complacency. Yearn for growth. But here are two encouragements. First, it's easy to feel that the change will never happen and that we have failed utterly. I've lost count of how many times I've felt that about my own heart. I heard this lovely quote from a podcaster, James Carey. He said this, God is the same yesterday, today and forever in spite of your sin. Your sin is not the most important thing in the universe. Seek forgiveness and see what happens. Because if, if Jesus is the Lord who endures from before Abraham to past now, then nothing can undo his work. And it won't lose potency over time. The cross is sufficient for you and me. We have not failed. Secondly, it's easy to feel that the burden is on us to change, that we must do it. And again, no. Psalm 90 verse 1. It's the Lord who is our dwelling place. He is our foundation and our rock and all our confidence, all our hope of change is built on him. The onus is only on us to appeal like Moses does. Asking God to teach us and grow us and refocus our vision so that we would rejoice day by day in his love. Encouragement about sin. What about significance? Well, maybe it's just because I'm moving into my 40s. It's time for me to put a midlife crisis into my diary and buy a motorbike. But it occurs to me to ask, if we're so tiny like the grass in the field, is there any meaning or legacy to my actions? And the encouragement again is that the Lord is our dwelling place. And because he endures forever, 
What we do matters. In his grace, our service has eternal consequences. But I don't want to encourage you towards grandiose actions. Rather, let me point you at Mark chapter 14, verse 9. And there you have this unnamed woman with zero historical or political significance. And she comes along and pours some perfume on Christ's head. And this tiny act of service gets one of the highest accolades that Christ hands out. He says, truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And of course, then Jesus goes on himself to wash his disciples' feet and to set the pattern for how his people are to love each other in humble service. Do you want to be significant? Well, friends, whose feet are you washing? How are you taking on the humble, insignificant tasks? Is it quiet, consistent giving from your riches to support others? Is it joining the church cleaning rota? Or giving a Saturday morning to help load a skip at the old schoolhouse? Or taking the time to check up on and pray for the guys in your house group who are struggling? I know that I am often too proud or busy or lazy. But if Jesus is Lord yesterday, today and forever, then those acts of service which follow his model have enduring eternal significance. Lastly, satisfaction. It's really easy to read Psalm 90 only looking backwards. God has been faithful to his nature and to his promises from everlasting ancient times. But Moses looks forward too. He anticipates God's blessing in what comes next day by day. If God is great and enduring through time, then his promise of heaven is not something to ignore. We live now with the tension of verse 10 in our hearts. But we live with the promise that the Lord will welcome his people into his presence. So friends, meditate as well on Christ's promise that he will return. We have a hope of heaven founded in his enduring greatness. I think often we forget that. So let me encourage you, spend time this week and wallow in Revelation 20 to 22. Let it lift your hearts. Because our God is great from everlasting to everlasting. And that recasts our whole vision of the world. We can have confidence and joy as we dwell in him. Let me finish in prayer. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout generations. You are the eternal creator, God. Would you please equip our hearts and minds to see you rightly as you've shown yourself to us fully in Jesus? Would you please lift and encourage our hearts and teach us to make you our shelter and refuge and dwelling place? 
teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In your compassion, satisfy us with your love. Day by day, teach us to rejoice in you and let your favour rest on your people here in Oxford and around the world. Amen.